This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. All right, you're walking through the wilderness, hiking in the Tasmanian wilderness on top of probably a hill. You stop for a drink, look into the distance, maybe into the valley, and you see something that you haven't seen, well, no one has seen since the 1930s. The distinctive striped back on a dog-like creature moving through the landscape on the hunt for food. Yes, my friends, you're watching a Tasmanian tiger in the wild. Oh, was. What a beautiful picture you paint. That technology <laughs> now exists to bring back animals we thought we had lost. We should say it hasn't been done yet. There are a lot of groups working on it, but it hasn't been done. But now we're thinking about instead of what if, the question is, should we? Should we be bringing back animals like the Tasmanian tiger, the passenger pigeon, or even the dodo? And what would we do with them if we did? This concept is called de-extinction, and it raises some pretty big ethical questions. I'm glad you're the one that put this term out there, Kirsten, because I was like, unextinction, um, <laughs> re-existence? What do you call it? De-extinction is the term that we're all learning together today. And you're right, so many questions. Is it right to bring an extinct animal back from the dead? Should there be rules on which ones you choose? It's also called revivalism. Uh, You know, that term's being thrown around is there, which kind of makes it seem like a movement. And, you know, we're going to be talking to some pretty passionate people in this area who really, really want to bring it back. But there are also those questions about, is it right to do this if we don't have the habitat to support them? On the one hand, if it's our fault as humans for making an animal extinct, then perhaps it's our duty to bring it back. But what are we bringing it back to? Yeah, and if we weren't responsible for making an animal extinct, do we just leave it to the past then and pick a winner of the one that humans were involved in? I'm not sure. I'd love you to have the answers for us today. Uh, And also there's things like plants have become extinct over that time too. Do we bring them back and not the animals or the animals and not the plants? So many questions. I can't wait to unpack this. I think my brain's going to hurt today, Kirsten. (laughs) I reckon we're going to cover a lot of ground. And it's interesting that you think about plants because more of those have become extinct than animals, but we don't really talk about that. They don't sort of have that wow factor that, say, bringing a woolly mammoth back to life does. So today we ask you, just because we can... Should we? Just because we can bring extinct animals back from the dead, should we be doing it? And what should the rules be? It's it's a dinosaur. This is the Conversation Hour. Welcome to Jurassic Park. See... Isn't that a warning, Kirsten? Haven't we all watched this movie before? For that exact reason, the movie Jurassic Park. Should we not bother even having this conversation and leave animals where they were in the past? Oh, was one of my all-time favourite movies. All the Jurassic Parks I've watched with wonder and awe and hope. I don't know. I'm in that camp where I think it's pretty exciting stuff. Look, I'm not talking about bringing the T-Rex back. But, you know, they've even started playing with chickens because a chicken is a close relative, well, not close, but it is a relative of a T-Rex. 
The, it, it it is kind of possible, but perhaps not the way that they did it in the movies. Do you remember how they did it in the movies? Was uh, wasn't it Amber with a mosquito and finding DNA and just putting everything together and seeing what you got? Is that basically yeah. what happened? That was it. They they kind of like found some fossilized DNA, but I, it kind of doesn't work like that. Genetics don't really work like that. Um, I should say who I am. Kirsten Dipros here, sitting with you in Warrnambool, uh, just in case you're wondering. And, of course, Warwick Long here in Shep. And Stu from Bendigo can join you now. Stu, how are you feeling about this? Oh, look, I'm pretty good about it. I like the concept of bringing animals back and rehabilitating the species and all the rest. But there's a quote from, ironically, Jurassic Park that you were just playing that I can't remember it verbatim, but it's essentially along the lines of man was too busy trying to work out whether he could. He didn't stop to consider whether he should. Oh, so does that make you stop and question whether we should be doing this, Stu? Oh, absolutely. Like, there's so much potential to go right and there's so much potential to go wrong. Like, we've just come through a pandemic and if we're bringing back extinct animals from way back when or whatever vintage we're talking, I mean, it's the start of the conversation, but what else do we bring back with them? Like, what does it do to the ecosystem? What does it do to the food chain? What does it do to humans? And where do we stop? Like, where's the line? Once you start, do we stop with a T-Rex? Like, how far do we go? <laughs> I think you make some very good points there, Stu. And I think on the line now we've got Ben Novak, who might be able to help us with some of these tricky questions. He's the lead scientist for Revive and Restore. He's based in the USA. And looking at the passenger pigeon, welcome to the Conversation Hour here in Australia, Ben. Hi, thanks for having me. You heard some of the discussion there. We've started with dinosaurs, which is kind of, you know, the, the most fantastic science science fiction way of getting to this conversation. But it's probably not how we're going to begin, is it? Yeah, no, no. no, no dinosaurs are a pretty good laugh <laughs> for for where we're at today. Um, you know, I think I think it was Kirsten that said it best. You know, it's it's not the way genetics works, the way Jurassic Park talked about it. Um, it's still very much science fiction, the idea of creating something that that would look like a dinosaur, um, like a T Rex, so to speak, making a a chicken look a little bit like a like a tiny dinosaur is within the realm of reality. But that's that's very very different and and uh, quite a far cry from what we're talking about with things like passenger pigeons and Tasmanian tigers. So your passion is the passenger pigeon. What can you tell us about this bird? Well, you know, I was actually kind of surprised to get invited to talk on Australian radio about passenger pigeons um, uh, because they're, you know, they're a bit of a, a American history. Uh, in about the 18, early 1800s, there were about 5 billion passenger pigeons in the eastern United States and Canada uh, living in the forests. Uh, They were the most abundant bird species on the entire planet. And those 5 billion birds, they weren't spread out all over the place. They were living in these super mega flocks of a billion to 3 billion birds. So there was only ever between 2 to 5 flocks of passenger pigeons in the world moving from one area of forest to another, a lot like a biological storm uh, creating uh, crowding onto trees and dropping lots of guano. And there's actually a, a species in Australia that, that uh, uh, gives a glimpse into what this might be like called the metallic starling uh, up in Queensland. 
they colonially breed in trees and deposit a lot of guano. And a, a PhD student did a really great observa uh, observational study about how these colonies of starlings in Australia create, uh, just through their guano alone, create hot spots in the forests for species to use it as a resource. Um, and there was more biodiversity living at higher densities utilizing their, their colony than in the surrounding forest. Um, and you take what people see with those metallic starlings and multiply it by a million and, you, and you're in the ballpark of thinking through what passenger pigeons were like, but they were doing it somewhere new all the time, constantly turning the, the forest in flux. And, and that's that incredible dynamic of them in the habitat is the exact reason why we want to uh, try and restore them. How did they die out? They were killed off by human harvesting, industrial scale harvesting. They were actually one of the first species, uh, I think probably the first species in which information technology was used to not systematically eradicate them because at the time, people actually didn't think they could kill all the passenger pigeons. They were used as a food source. And so in 1860, the invention of the telegraph, people could actually... Uh, track where the flocks were going from one city to another and alert people that they were coming their way and this would allow uh companies that hired trappers to send their guys out and and head the birds off and and consume uh trap them shoot them and send them to markets and so uh advances in industrialization and information technology basically uh turned what was somewhat of a nearly sustainable regulatory harvest and just into just this completely unsustainable overkill from the 1860s to the 1880s. And then the by 1902, they were gone in the wild. And in 1914, the last inbred animal died in a zoo. Wow. Uh, on the SMS, Georgie says, should we not be concerned and working to restore our planet's health before bringing back distinct flora and fauna? Bring them back to what? A planet fighting for survival. Uh, ben, that's why I wanted to get you on and you mentioned you weren't sure why an Aussie program wanted uh, a kind of a US and, and Canadian look at things. And it's, it's because you've kind of thought about some of those questions around the habitat and perhaps what the passenger pigeon could bring back to the wild. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, I think a lot of people's concerns and questions about this are, are you know, they come from several places. They come from a, a, a coarse kind of understanding of nature and, and our values, but they also just come actually from a, a huge misunderstanding about how conservation really works. I mean, my counter question is how, how on earth do we fix the world without restoring the life that we're killing off in it Um you know, ecosystems are complex and through evolutionary time, species have co-evolved to live and have relationships. Every species the passenger pigeon lived with 500 years ago um, is still out there in the forest in the eastern U.S. Um, and that's, well, that's a bit of a wrong quote to make. Several more of them are extinct. But the species still alive in the forest today lived with passenger pigeons for millions of years and they're co-evolved to have a relationship with them. And so today we actually see with the reduction in disturbances in the eastern U.S. that despite the fact that we have more forest today than we did 100 to 150 years ago, we have more forest coming back because of the way land use has changed here in the eastern U.S., it's less diverse than it used to be. 
we have species still uh, in decline despite the idea that they have habitat. And it's because their habitat is missing the dynamics and the key relationships of species that went extinct 100 years ago. So we can't help forests today unless we restore those processes, which people go out and do. They go out and do it by hand uh, <laughs> to disturb forests and restart regeneration patterns. But they can't do it at all at the scale that passenger pigeons did. So uh, a really great example is here in the southern Appalachians where I live, there's a, a fire, controlled fire uh, managers association, and they had a record year in 2020. Despite the pandemic, they had a record year. They were able to uh, do controlled burns on 20,000 uh, acres of forest um, in the whole year. And 20,000 acres of forest is what passenger pigeons disturbed every four to six weeks um, throughout the entire U.S., the eastern U.S. So the scale of, of, of what... The, of biological species can do compared to us is just just not even on the same chart. And Ben, I wanted to ask about the possibilities for the future. If you're able to bring the, the passenger pigeon back, is there possibilities for other animals like the dodo? Well, absolutely. Um, Beth Shapiro's lab at the uh, University of Santa Cruz has recently uh, sequenced the dodo bird's genome. It turns out there was just a, a single bone sample that, I, that had good enough DNA to get a dodo bird's genome. And, and so the three basic things you need to try and recreate a species are its DNA, um, a suitable living species that can be used to give birth to to that extinct species um, through a technology that works, a reproductive technology that works for it. And then, of course, a technology for taking that DNA information and that living species and recreating that genome. And we have that now thanks to uh, CRISPR-Cas9 technology that was uh, innovated in 2012 through discoveries in bacteria. We have a technology that can allow us to turn the A in one genome to a C and make something more like the extinct species genome. And there are severe limitations to what we can do, we, even with these technologies. But... Uh, <laughs> You've <sorry>. got children. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> yes. What, what, would give birth, what would give birth to a dodo? Um, well, that's where things with the dodo would get far more complicated. Um, <laughs> they're so a big the, bird. Close, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know so how big they are when they're born. It's still pretty big. Um, uh, so their closest living relative is the Nicobar pigeon, which is about the same size as a street pigeon. It's a gorgeous bird. Everybody listening should Google it right now. It, it's it, it looks colored like, has similar coloration, almost like a peacock, just this blend of blue and green, but it has feathers that look like dreadlocks. Looks nothing like a dodo bird. And it's the same size as a street pigeon. So it's about 20 times smaller than a dodo bird, but it is the closest living relative. So we would use cells from it to re-engineer the dodo's genome. But for a dodo, we would probably have to use a combination of technologies to give birth to it. So a pair of, of Nicobar pigeons could lay the egg, but we would have to take that embryo out of that egg and provide it with more yolk and a larger eggshell to develop. And this is actually something people can do. People have hatched chickens out of turkey eggs, quail out of chicken eggs, um, uh, bird embryo is actually quite manipulatable once they're once they're the egg is laid. <laughs> Doesn't sound but, scary uh, at all. Hey Ben, really quickly, just before <laughs> we let you go, um, 
Do you think you'll succeed? And if so, by, by when do you think a passenger pigeon will be flying around America again? Oh, oh succeed in flying around. Um, well, we've, we've recently, um, like the Tiger Lab in Australia getting its funding, we've recently finally gotten some significant funding to advance bird technology. Um, we're doing it for all endangered species. Um, it, it's a supporting technology that will help create passenger pigeons, but we're aiming at everything at Revive and Restore. We aim to basically create these biotechnologies from a holistic approach um, to, to help endangered species and help it, you know, bring back these extinct species where they can help the ecosystems that are alive today. So all those questions you've had about habitat and other things, mm. they're, all, you know, they're all incorporated into that. And I, I strongly urge anybody to you know, check out the paper I published in 2018, stuff like so that. So you're not going to give me a date, Ben? Um, well, I'm leading into it. Um, I don't like your, giving the dates because, of course, I'm going to be wrong. But with this, your website with these, said 2025 when I was googling oh, the, around. The website's absolutely wrong now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so we we had this ambitious goal of you know trying to do something in 10 years. And why I say we have now have funding and, and things like that is for the first 10 years we could not get funding for de-extinction. I think a lot of people have ideas like there's a lot of de-extinction work going. There's only four species in the world that people are doing this with. Um, it's a for-profit company with the Mammoth. It's the Tiger Lab in Australia with the Tasmanian Tiger. And it's Revive and Restore, a non-profit organization with two birds. Um, and uh, we've just recently gotten funding to kind of advance these technologies. And, and I think, I really do think now we may get to recreating passenger pigeons in, in, passenger pigeons in about five to seven years um, with the convergence of technologies that are innovating. And then, you know, once we're create, recreating the bird, I think we're probably about 15 to 20 years out from being able to put them in the wild. But in that 15 to 20 years, you know, they'll be at places where people can, you know, see them and interact with them, um, you know, like zoos and breeding facilities. So, so I think, mm -hmm. you know, in the 2030s, we're going to see it happen. Um, and it's going to, you know, it's going to be really exciting. This is happening in our lifetime. And it's, it's for the same reasons that we do restorative conservation all over the globe. Um, we restore extinct species the old-fashioned way all the time by borrowing them from one area and putting them where they've gone extinct in another place. So, I, you know, I invite all the listeners to look into what conservation has done because a lot of the questions that they'll have and concerns they've have have already been answered by 120 years of conservation efforts that have saved species and ecosystems. And these biotechnologies are just enabling conservationists to to do things that they've wanted to do for a really long time. People would have loved to have bring back, brought back passenger pigeons decades ago, but there was no technology to do it. Yeah, and now it's we're a higher-tech version, isn't it? Yeah. Ben Novak, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. From America, we realise it's a very different time zone, so we really appreciate your time <laughs> yeah, today. Getting late. <laughs> ben Novak, their lead scientist for Revive and Restore USA, speaking about the passenger pigeon, but also where he sits really on the ethics of the idea of using technology to bring back an, a species of animal that was lost in 1914, I think he said the last one, died in captivity. Absolutely incredible. So today we're asking you, given you've just heard the arguments for, you're going to hear the arguments against as well, but just because we can bring back extinct animals from the dead, should we? Simon is calling from Roval. Hi, Simon. Yeah, hi, Warwick. Look, that was fascinating what we were just hearing there from America but with the greatest respect, I suggest it's actually a completely simplistic pile of nonsense. Um, essentially, we don't have the capacity to bring these animals back. In the case, for instance, of the thylacine, the proposal is that we take the DNA from a thylacine, 
which we have access to, yes, and we inject it into the egg of a Tasmanian devil. Because what we don't have is the DNA of the mitochondria, the little engines that run the cells. So essentially, what we, and what's more, we don't have an egg cell. So what we end up with is a thing that looks like a thylacine, but it's built on the chassis of a Tasmanian, a Tasmanian devil. Now, yeah, Simon, you make, a, you make a really good and interesting point. Uh, and we will actually be able to speak to Andrew Pask, who is actually looking at the, the Tassie Tiger uh, from the University of Melbourne a little bit later coming up in the conversation hour. And he'll be able to answer some of that. But you're right in that there are different ways of, of bringing species back. And sometimes it's creating an animal that's very close to the original, but potentially not the original. We don't have the intestinal flora. We don't have the parasitic diseases. We don't have all the other things that went extinct with that animal at the same time. Yeah. Thanks, Simon. It's um, it's an interesting debate about, you know, bringing them back and what are we actually bringing them back? It, you know, not just what to, but also what are they, Warwick? Uh, and so what I picked up from what you were saying and what Simon was saying there, Kirsten, is you could end up with something that looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, but isn't actually a duck. I'm interested <laughs> in exploring that further. Professor Hamish McCallum is a director of uh, the Griffith Centre for Planetary Health and Food Security. He can join you now on the program. Welcome to the conversation, Al. Thanks. Uh, do you have concerns about us using technology to bring back species that have long since gone? Um, I do, yeah. I mean, the first and I think most basic thing is that we have a very large number of species that are on the point of going extinct at the moment or are severely endangered. And I would prefer to see resources used to retain those and save those rather than go off on what could well be a wild goose chase to try to recreate something that looks like a thylacine. I think the, the last call hit the nail on the head that the if the technology were possible at all, and I think it's still a long way away, I, I would be very surprised. Um, I, I would hope that Ben Novak is correct about it being possible in the next 10 or 15 years, but frankly, I'd be surprised. Uh, but what we will have is fragments of thylacine DNA we don't quite know where they go. We will tie them in with fragments of Tasmanian devil DNA would be the plan, I guess, or possibly even numbats. There are some suggestions that numbats are actually closer related to thylacines than to uh, Tasmanian devils. And you'd create a thing. If you could manage to create the thing and it could manage to actually live through to maturity, it might look a little bit... Well, you will probably fiddle around until you got something that looked like a thylacine, but whether in fact, well, it certainly wouldn't be a thylacine, and whether it would actually act like a thylacine or play the ecological role of a thylacine, I think is another question again. One thing we haven't really talked about is the money factor, and you, you touched on, on it then about focusing more on conserving what we've got. How much money does it take to bring something back? You know, we're talking about decades of investment. Yeah, I mean, even to um, look after an endangered species at the moment, Australia has a very large number of endangered species and the amount of funding we put into them is ludicrously small. It's absolutely going nowhere 
towards preserving what we've got, let alone recreating things that we had at some stage. So in terms of the the money and the spend, and I suppose so much of conservation comes down to that, doesn't it, Professor McCallum, the, the idea of using what little resources you have to do the most good you can where you don't see the, the cost benefit in bringing back something when so many species are at the risk of extinction right now. Yes, I mean, there's this argument made about triaging endangered species and to some extent that argument is problematical because it sort of assumes that there is this fixed amount of money available for nature conservation, whereas I would argue very strongly that much more needs to be made available. But the reality is it will never be infinite. And I think until you've got a very, very large um, uh, amount of resources available, you should be trying to focus on re-establishing what we've got across the continent. I mean, there's any number of species... uh, which are extinct on the Australian mainland, particularly in the desert and arid regions, that persist in tiny populations on offshore islands. And I would much rather see resources put into restoring those entire desert ecosystems rather than trying to put all the money into recreating one species. Professor Hamish McCallum is with us. Isn't there something about dreaming big, though? You know, we as humans like to dream big and you know space was a, a, a dream going to the moon now mars is 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 kind of on the table as our next big dream should we be looking at de-extinction through this lens that yes there are some huge problems about trying to make this a reality and there are some big financial costs with it but isn't that how society progressed by big dreams and and getting there eventually yeah that's that's an argument i guess and um Uh, I I spent three years down in Tassie working on the Save the Tasmanian Devil program. And yes, it would be lovely if there were thylacines running around again in Tasmania. But um, you really have to be a bit hard-headed about these things, I think. And what might be a wonderful dream, if it means that a lot more important things can't get done, then perhaps you should abandon it. So I know you're not a fan, but I'd love to ask the hypotheticals anyway. If we were bringing species back, Professor McCallum, would we have to choose the ones that humans played a role in the elimination of or could we bring back anything in which we we choose might benefit the environment in which it would live in? Yeah, well, that's, again, I mean, if you're looking at, say, Australian ecosystems, what we have now is obviously very different from... uh, what existed at the time of European settlement and what existed 60,000 plus years ago before the Aboriginal people arrived and before there was a whole range of climate changes was very different again. So bringing back something that disappeared, if, if a species has gone extinct, fundamentally, it has gone extinct for a reason. And until you address that reason, if you try to re-release it or reintroduce it, exactly the same thing will happen again. So if you're talking about the Australian arid zone fauna, we know the problem. We know the problem is foxes and cats. And if we can deal with that problem, we probably can restore them. But if you're talking about something like diprotodons, uh, now those giant uh, sort of cow-sized wombat relatives, I guess, which disappeared some 30,000 years ago, somebody, one of my colleagues will know to correct me on that precise figure, but what 
that extinction was due to, nobody really knows. Some people argue it was Aboriginal hunting. Others argue it was climate change. Possibly it was a combination of both. But until you know what the problem is and address the problem, the extinction will just happen again. I, I think that's a really important point you make. Uh, on the other side of the argument, I've seen people say, look, if we were able to bring back some of these great, you know, animals from the past, like the woolly mammoth or even the dodo, some of these more exotic looking ones, then it, it will make people excited about conservation. You know, you could use that money to go towards conservation. And, and I know we're all thinking, oh, that's two steps to Jurassic Park. But I believe in Siberia, they're, they're bringing back, you know, they've got an area where they're bringing back the tundra of the old ice age and um, they've got, you know, big animals there. And, and, you know, perhaps one day we could introduce a woolly mammoth to that uh, scenario. Does... Does, it, does de-extinction make conservation more exciting and therefore make more people get behind it? Yeah, I mean, again, that's a very good point. So, you know, fundamentally, conservation requires public support. And if you want public support, you've got to be exciting the public. And it's much easier to do that to you know, conserve, for example, tigers rather than some particularly extinct, uh, particularly bizarre uh, parasitic worm. Uh, Professor Hamish McCallum, thank you so much for testing the theories that we're talking about today. It's been good to talk to you. Thank you very much. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. We've been learning that the technology does exist in some way to bring back species from the dead. We've heard a lot about the passenger pigeon process in the and project in the US, uh, which is trying to bring back an animal there. A lot of ch- uh, talk about bringing back the Tasmanian tiger. And Kirsten Diprose, we've heard a lot of the ethical questions and the technical questions that people have about that process. Yeah, it's a very interesting conversation and it's it's exciting to think that this science fiction of Jurassic Park levels could perhaps be a reality. And we've heard about how it can be difficult in terms of the actual animal might be very close to the animal that was extinct, but not the exact animal. In It depends on how you actually do it. And another problem is that you can't just bring one or two animals back and expect it to survive. You know, you've only got a very small gene pool then. So you've got issues of disease, um, you know, inbreeding, like you need to actually create a lot of them to be able to have a successful living group of animals to bring them back, which is a another area that makes it harder. Uh, Craig, the tracky in Seaford says, all I'm hearing here is Frankenstein monster, lol. Uh, well, I'm glad we're <laughs> keeping you entertained, Craig. Rod at Wood's point is a little bit more serious and circumspect, really. Critters that became extinct via natural selection should stay that way. If they were lost via human intervention, they should be restored. They're the thoughts from Rod. I love this text. Putting T-Rex DNA into chickens might keep the foxes away. <laughs> that would work. <laughs> Mini T-Rex in the hen house. Uh, I don't know if it would be good for the chickens, though, uh, at the same time. Uh, we should uh, d- direct all our, of our resources into fixing climate change and therefore preventing more animals from becoming extinct, says T in the Yarra Valley. And Professor Hamish hit the nail on the head. The wow and novelty factor in bringing things back could result in more extinctions as we ignore what we still have. That's from D in Richmond. A lot of issues to really nut out, but it's an interesting space that the, that the USA and Australia with the thylacine is really spearheading. Where we'll be in 10 or 20 years, 
I don't know. Could it be Jurassic Park? Warwick, just hypothetically, what would be your number one or two animals that you would like to see brought back, if indeed you do? Uh, oh, yeah, well, that's, I suppose, putting the moral objections or anything aside, just the idea of bringing back something. I think Professor McCallum hit it on the head before, the Diprotodon, the Australian cow-sized <laughs> wombat-type animal. That sounds extraordinary. And if you've ever seen some of the, the skeletons around or some of the, the uh, statues or, I suppose, the lifelike creations of done of the Diprotodon, there was one out at um, Wentworth in, in New South Wales, just near Mildura, where the Murray and the Darling I've meet. I've been was, there. It's great. Yes. And I was like, oh, I'd love to imagine seeing this thing in real life. Is there something on your bucket list, Kirsten? Well, Australia's got a whole lot of fauna like the Diprotodon, that like those massive kangaroos and, you know, giant emu-type emu creatures that, you know, we could really be leading the way. But I would like to see the dodo, um, <laughs> you know. I did go to Mauritius about 10 or 15 years ago and I couldn't imagine what it would do for that economy. Their whole tourism is based on the dodo and the bird's dead. Like, I just think that that's astounding. Imagine bringing that back, <laughs> what that would do. Again, moral objections, you know, aside because there are some big conversations that we would need to have to make this possible. But one thing that we haven't really spoken about was mm. is plants and the possibility of bringing back our plants. Well, and this is an interesting thing, and it's probably a safer space in terms of people's moral and ethical objections and the idea of bringing plants back from the past and, and growing them again and also keeping the genes that we have in our plants now for future. Uh, there's actually international efforts to do this. There's a, a, a Svalbard um, seed bank, an international seed bank, which is kept well under the ground in the Arctic Circle where seeds from all over the world are kept as a, a last resort in case something terrible happens to the planet. And there are similar efforts happening right here in our state. There's a Australian Grains Gene Bank kept in Horsham and Sally Norton can join you there. She, she's the Senior Research Scientist and Leader of the Australian Grains Gene Bank. Sally, welcome to the program. Thank you. We've been speaking about bringing animals back from the dead, but you have the ability of bringing plants back from the dead in, in some ways, and that's that's old types of food that maybe aren't grown or aren't as popular with, with farmers these days. You keep those genes at your your seed bank there. What can you tell us? Yeah, well, I suppose the, the Australian Grains Gene Bank is here um, to make sure that we're preserving uh, food crop lines. So we're a Grains Gene Bank, so we're, we're basically um, broadacre grain crops here. Um, to make sure we have those old types of varieties from all around the world and from within Australia, here is resources to prevent them being lost or, or to become extinct, um, but also to make them, I guess, into the new varieties that we use today in farmers' fields, but also into the future with the changing conditions that we're expecting, um, whether through climate change or land use changes. Yeah, so is the idea you keep some genes, you keep the diversity of plants sitting there. So in the future, if you're trying to breed a species of wheat that can be drought tolerant or, or better to whatever the climate has changed to, you've got a, a bank of different genes and a bank of diversity of plants sitting there. Yeah, we do. So what we aim to preserve or conserve here is the full breadth of genetic diversity for food crops. So for, for wheat, for example, I think we have about 50-odd thousand types of wheat in the collection here. Um, many of those are not, not really useful to be grown in farmers' fields today, but they've got incredible characteristics or genes and genetic diversity that can be used to give that drought tolerance or a pest or a disease resistance for future farming. 
Do you think it's then ethically easier to bring back a plant from the dead than, say, the, the animals we've been speaking about today? Oh, look, I think it's incredibly challenging to bring plants back from the dead. Um, probably less complex than animals, depending on what you talk about. I guess what their, their genes are like, um, but for us, the, the whole point for for our existence is to, is to prevent that extinction, extinction, and make sure that we've got that genetic diversity preserved um, here in the collection for for future use. Is there any commercial value to that as well? I know that there are companies now that are looking at certain heirloom species and wanting to market that as being, you know, this is an original apple or an original seed or a wheat variety that you're eating. Are you seeing any of that? And I know that you're not, you know, in practice for the, for commercial reasons, but it, you know, kind of brings it to the everyday person if you're thinking you're you're eating some apple sauce from an heirloom heirloom apple. Yeah, well, I guess the, there wouldn't be that many grain crops around the country that aren't derived from material that is in the Grange Gene Bank at the moment. Um, so we have the history of Australian agriculture and we have seen a, a very large increase in interest over the last five years or so in those more heirloom grain, grain types because of the flavour and the characteristics they give, particularly for baking, so for bread, um, compared to the modern day varieties which have been bred um, to be highly productive in some quite challenging environments, whereas those heirloom varieties aren't necessarily as productive in terms of yield, um, but they give you know, sometimes a much better quality grain for certain products at the other end. So, yeah, increasing interest in those older type varieties. So how big is the, the seed bank that you've got there? How much are you keeping? Uh, we've got around about 177,000 different types of seed in the, in the bank here. Um, is it hard a, to keep? Do you, do you have to grow some every now and then just to make sure you've got viable seeds? Yeah, we do. So although we've got such a large collection, we also need to keep it alive forever, which is a pretty pretty big job, actually. Um, so we're routinely growing out around about 4,500 different seed lines a year, uh, either here in Horsham or in Queensland or in other other locations which are, are suitable for the, for the whatever we're growing, so to make sure we've got the right environment. So it's quite challenging. We, we have here the full diversity. So we've got sort of really adapted elite varieties which grow in farmless fields today. You see them when you're driving around. Um, we've also got more traditional landrace varieties which are hundreds if not potentially thousands of years old which originate from overseas in the centres of origin of those crops. They're a little more challenging to produce. And then we go into those wild relatives um, from around the world and within Australia. And they're extremely challenging to maintain over the longer term because in, in the wild they, they thrive, in captivity they're a bit more challenging. So there's a lot of work. <laughs> I, I know that sort of de-extinction of, of plants is not exactly your work, or at least not yet, but um, if we are talking about in the future being able to bring back animals, then we need to be able to bring back the food that they ate. And, you know, some of that food's no longer around because the plants are extinct. Is, is that what we need to be thinking about as well? I suppose with the Grange Gene Bank, we're an agricultural seed bank, but you've also got within Australia conservation seed bank networks as well, and they're very much involved with rare, threatened um, and native plant species that would probably fall into that sort of category there. But, it, yeah, it is important that we have a diverse food type available for our, our human and animal um, diets as well. So I think in the future, yes, we definitely need to consider not just what we eat now or animals eat now, uh, but what we need to eat in the future. Well, we thank you very much for your time today, Sally Norton. Thanks for telling us a little bit about your work and what you're doing to keep, I suppose, the, the history of some of the food we eat alive. Well, thank you very much.
That's a senior research scientist and leader of the Australian Grains Gene Bank, which is in Horsham. That's where they keep that. But uh, there are seed banks, Kirsten, everywhere for plants and so forth that are kept around our state. And, yeah, a big international one, which is kept in the Arctic Circle, which is uh, the last resort, which is kind of scary to think about for a lot of the plant species in the world. Yeah, but it's done in, in case there was some sort of catastrophic event that we needed to to bring all of our seeds back. Um, and it's interesting, that concept of having a seed bank, maybe we'll have a gene bank for animals. I don't know. That's a horrible dystopian thought that we would need such a thing, isn't it? But just if we think about it in the same way, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Um, Kirsten, thank you. It's been so good to chat today. We've, we've been circling each other for years, so it's actually been lovely to talk. I know, it's been wonderful. I can't believe we didn't talk about agriculture. Well, we kind of did, a little bit. <laughs> There's always time for more.